Um, if you got a Bible, you can turn it to John 8. If you don't got a Bible, we've got some lovely people. they got friendly faces. They're walking down the aisles right now, and they want to make sure you get a Bible so you can follow along with us today. We're going to continue in the God Is series where we're focusing on the different attributes of who God is. But not just focusing on the knowledge of the attributes about who God is, but ultimately our hope is to know him better. That word's really important. It's going to come up today in the text today. But as we, as we seek to draw, to, to draw into his word, to know about him, and ultimately to know him better, uh, today we're going to continue on this series with the topic of the Trinity. If there were subtitles, it'd be like a gulp, like, or like he's quaking in his boots. Um, the Trinity, no little topic. If, uh, if I'm honest, uh, I kind of feel like the, the time I went with my family and we, we went across Canada. Maybe you've done the Cross Canada tour. And uh, you go through the prairies and it's like flat, right, for a long time. And then you arrive to the Rockies and, and it's just like, whoa. And you just, as you, as you stare at them, they're beautiful, they're big, and they make you feel small or feeble. You don't know the words that you're supposed to use. Maybe, maybe you haven't been to the Rockies. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon. Maybe you've been to the sea and you're standing before it and you just feel small. You feel tiny. Maybe you've uh, looked up on a cold November night and you've seen the Aurora Borealis. Not just the Aurora Borealis, but the, 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 the stars. And you realize how far are those away? How, how big are those? And if you've done any study on it, it makes you feel small, insufficient somehow to grasp the grand nature of the stars and the galaxy. Maybe you've never had that moment of feeling small. I'm sure that you feel what I feel today, an insufficiency to explain something that's happened to you. Maybe it's that moment you met that special somebody. You're trying to tell your friend. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're like, you don't get it. You don't get it. You're not, you're not moved by it. Maybe you've gone on a mission trip. Anybody ever done a short-term mission trip before? And, and you're rocked by the culture and by what God's doing in there. And you come back and you're telling everybody. You might have even stood before your church. and You're trying to explain it to people. And they're all nodding along. And they're, and they're even smiling. And, and they're, they're pretending with you. But you're looking in their eye and you're recognizing that they're, they're failing to grasp it. They're not properly moved by what you're saying. You're not able to summarize it sufficiently. So you often go with, well, I guess you had to be there. I kind of feel like that today as I start today's message. I, I get this opportunity to open up God's word, and I'm trying to help us unpack the Trinity, which should be like, right? And I feel feeble. I mean, how do you set about making known that which is infinitely grand, the one that's inexplicably beautiful, Majestic, the glorious one. How do, you, how do you wrap that into a sermon? How could there ever be a sufficient order? Amen? Well, let's try. So let's pray. Our Father, you, uh, you've revealed yourself 
you've given us glimpses of, of who you are through creation. That you formed it but your word. Lord, you've revealed yourself to us through your holy scriptures, your word. Written for us. And ultimately you have revealed yourself, as John 1 says, through the word. Jesus the Christ. Lord God, uh, today we need your assistance. Your help just to, just to understand a little bit more. To get a, a little greater glimpse of your beauty. To get that little sliver more of comprehension of your inexhaustible nature today. Lord God, I pray that you'd grant your feeble servant clarity and you'd grant us, your family, clarity as we open up your word. May it not just be information. Lord God, forgive us if it's ever that. Lord God, move our hearts with your word, I pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Again, if you hadn't opened up your Bibles yet, we're going to be in John chapter 8, but I got to give you a little bit of a warning before we get there. The goal of today's sermon isn't so that you can put the Trinity in a nice little box and you got it figured out, you put it in your back pocket, and I'm good, I got it. All right? In fact, the goal of today's sermon is for you to be confident in the midst of your confusion, to be content, to be intelligibly illogical. Think about it. Today, my job is to, is, is to explain the, the one that are three and the three that are one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. How is this possible? And everyone's brain should be, right? Only me? It's going to be really hard if you guys all figured it out. I haven't got it figured out. If, some today, if somehow today at the end of this, you're logically convinced that you can comprehend God's triune nature, then you'll have missed something along the way because that's not the intention. In fact, if you've ever heard the God that can speak galaxies into being with just words, if you've ever heard him presented in, as entirely comprehensible to our finite mind, then someone may have done you an incredible disservice. You're like, yeah, I, got, I, I, I totally understand everything about God. You... Really? That, that might even be an injustice. I would submit that you could come here every single Sunday. You could sit where you're sitting today. You could, you could even take every day in between Sunday and Sunday and sit under the feet of the world's best theologians. You could open up God's Word every single day and flip through it every single day and even commit it all to memory, and yet you would fail to grasp the greatness of His totality. Good thought for an amen. For example, even this, we're opening up the book of John. Even as he summarizes the book of John in John 21, verse 25, he's talking about the 33-year life of Jesus. And, he, and he's trying to summarize it in just a few pages. But his, his summary of this attempt is that the world could not sufficiently contain all the books that could have been written about that 33-year life of one member of the triune God over 33 years. So certainly then, today's passage, it's a glimpse. 
just a glimpse. These 30 minutes are insufficient to quantify a God whose greatness, well, you just talked about it. We sang about it. Whose greatness we're going to sing about for eternity. We're going we're to sing about his attributes, about his, his, his worthiness of our praise, about his glory for e- eternity. Can we wrap our minds around eternity? And yet then fail to exhaust the resources for which he's worthy of praise from our lips, adoration from our hearts, and devotion from our lives. And yet here we are. We're going to talk about the Trinity. Let's try, right? And it's important that we try. It's important that we explore the Trinity. It's important that we seek to wrap our mind around it and be baffled by it. Because if we didn't, we would miss the foundation upon, we, upon which we understand Genesis 1, the creation of the world. We, we would miss the foundation, uh, foundational teaching that leads to our, our biblical principles of marriage, church unity, and even, even our own salvation process in which all the members of the Trinity play their part. So we need, we need to set our minds to try to pursue that glimpse, but a glimpse of this glory that we might be transformed, never the same again. Got your Bibles? John chapter 8, verse 53. We're going to look specifically, not just at all members of the Trinity, we're going to be talking a lot about who was Jesus? What was he claiming to be? Was he claiming to be God? Was he claiming to be Part of the Trinity. That's going to be our focus today as we open up John chapter 8, verse 53. Let's read along. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? These are the Jewish religious rulers, all right? This is like chief priests, the Pharisees, the really smart religious scholars of the day. They are having an argument with Jesus, and they, start, and they are saying this. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? That's really key. We're going to get there. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, or amen, amen, or verily, verily, okay? I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Much has led to this moment. Much has led to this claim, all right? We're picking up just the end, a tail end of an argument. I really, it started as, as a discussion, but it became more and more loaded, more and more heated between Jesus and these religious rulers, the Jews. And we see that it gets heavier and heavier and more tense and more tense throughout. So far, there's been a lot of back and forth. And Jesus has already claimed a number of things throughout this argument. We've got a few of them on the board here today that he's already claimed in this discussion with these religious rulers. Okay? You can see it. 
You can see what he's claimed. Read over it. Don't look at me. Read over it. See what he's already suggesting about himself in this claim. This is a loaded discussion. And you can see, it's not just those. There's another slide. we got more things that Jesus has claimed in this discussion along with them. And if you look at those claims, you can see where this is going. And you can understand a little bit more of why it's getting more and more tense. Those claims that you read, you could do a sermon on every single one of them. I mean, this argument is packed full of, relig- of, of good truth and, and things that we, we ought to put right here. And we ought to study. We're not going to focus on all of these things, but we're going to focus on, if you will, the climax that we have just read. The end of how this discussion goes. But I would say this, as you read through that list, you're going to see, and if you're a student of God's word, and you're going to walk through the book of John, you're going to see that this is not by John himself. He's hoping to expose Jesus for who he really is. The word made flesh. And he presents that apologetic all throughout the book of John. So it's really important to see that what we're going to talk about here today, Jesus' claim to divinity is not just talked about here, it's talked about throughout this book. In fact, part of why he wrote it. And as you see those claims, and you see how the conversation has gone thus far, the religious ruler dudes, these theologians, these guys that are standing in front of him, well-studied, knowing the word, some of them can quote so much of this that it just blow our minds. They're confused. They're confounded. They're, they're frustrated. This doesn't jive with Theo 101, my theology class that I've grown up studying. It doesn't jive with it. They've had this back and forth showdown as Jesus is making these claims and they can feel they're losing the grip on the argument that's made in front of all these people in the temple. So what do they do? They resort to what some today might call a smear campaign. They wonder aloud in front of all these people. Do you plan to commit suicide? They called Jesus a Samaritan, which back then is a pretty bad insult to a Jewish man. It's a mixed breed kind of insult. It's an enemy of the Jews kind of insult, but it's a heretic and a liar. You're a heretic. You're a liar, Jesus, you Samaritan. They even claim that that he has a demon. Anybody ever say, hey, man, you're demon-possessed in an argument? I don't know, but when I'm reading along, if you're reading along, you're like, oh, man. It can't get any worse than that, right? Calling a person demon-possessed, that's pretty, that's pretty rough if you're in an argument with this person, all right? But here, here we, we think, okay, okay, what's going to happen next? Jesus ups the ante. He even states that they are sons of Satan. You heard him call them liars. He says they're sons of Satan due to their plans to murder him, lie about him and ultimately reject him. Because the devil, their father, is a murderer, a liar, and ultimately rejected God's reign over him. Now, if you could just put yourself in this situation. Buddy calls them demon-possessed. Buddy calls them sons of Satan. And you're going, what's going to happen, right? I mean, that moment, we've all, we've all been in a moment, something like that. It's tense. I mean, it's... It's so thick, you could cut it with a knife kind of idea. No, 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 maybe a chainsaw in this case, all right? Everybody's eyes are bulging. All the silence, it's like silence. It's just like this is all that exists right now. We're in the temple. What's going to happen next? 
eyes bulging, fists clenched. What's, what's going to happen? This cannot end well, right? Everyone's convinced it's not going to end well. But why? Why is it so tense? What's the key that leading us to this point in this passage? What's the key to the problem? What's the, what's the problem? What's the confusing? Where's the conflict? Verse 53, we see the first reason for the situation. Abraham and the prophets died, but what do they say? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you make yourself out to be, Jesus? This is the point, really. They don't get it. They're not, they're not understanding who's standing in front of them. All right, these, these students of God's word, all right, they're missing, they're missing Jesus' ministry as he declares God's words on his behalf to the people. They, they're missing the acts of love from the Father. They're missing the miraculous display of power that only God has, that's been on display throughout Jesus' ministry, all of those things have not been enough to wake these religious dudes up to who they're arguing with on this day. See, their theological understanding, okay, has blinded them to who's standing in front of them. Worse yet, maybe maybe they even know they're wrong, but they're clinging to their theology because it's their means of remaining superior. Either way, they're actively failing to recognize that the God they've been studying since they were kids is standing before them in flesh and blood. As such, they have no clue, no clue how foolish they're looking. The level of foolishness that they're putting on display as they argue and they even throw shade at, call demon-possessed their maker. The one that, even as they call him that, is holding them together at every cell. You see see how crazy that is? Knowing this, you have to see the graciousness of Jesus even continuing this dialogue. Letting them say these things and continuing in the conversation. Why is he doing this? What is he hoping for? He's hoping to wake the hearers, not only the guys he's arguing with, but all the people in the temple and even us today as it's recorded for us. He's waking us. He's hoping to wake us from our stupor and to know that he is the I am. He is God. Verse 54 and 55 continue. And here we see the second reason for these Jewish guys' confusion. Jesus says, you say he's our God. They even claim God as their father. But you have not known him. You have not, what's that word? Known. While they were avid students of God, they have lacked intimacy with him. Because they they haven't hung out with him in that sense, they don't have that intimate relationship of knowing him, they are missing his heart on display in the works of Christ. They've missed his voice as Jesus only spoke the words the Father gave to him to speak. Worse yet, not only are they missing God, on display in front of them. As verse 19 suggests, he's the exact 
representation of him, along with John 14, 13, and Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. They all attest to have seen Jesus, is to have seen the Father, and yet they are actively blind as he's living in front of them. Worse yet, not only are they rejecting him, they're hating him, just like their father Satan. In verse 56, we see that Jesus continues to mess with them, confounds them even more, and their theology is just blowing up in their heads. It says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. He would see it. And he saw it and was glad. Here, Jesus is picking up on an argument. If you follow that argument, if you take some time later today to unpack that argument, this has been a big part of the argument. Ultimately, he's making a statement here. You're not receiving me like your father Abraham did. Well, what does he mean? How can he want to have seen it and, have saw, and, have, and saw it? We know that, that God made a covenant to Abraham, and that covenant builds on Adam's own covenant in Genesis 3. And it was this, that a seed, singular, there would arise a man that would be the hope for all the world. To make all the wrong things right. And Abraham wanted to see it, and he was promised it would come through him. But then, Abraham also saw it, saw his day, and was glad. What's the, What's the deal about that? Well, that could mean presently he's seeing Jesus live right in front of everyone. Or it could be that Abraham actually did meet Jesus thousands of years earlier. You see, Jesus was the one who came in Genesis 17 and 18, and he's confirmed the covenant to Abraham himself as the angel of the Lord. The pre-incarnate Christ, what some people call a Christophany. It's a visit from Jesus in the Old Testament. And what did Abraham do when he met Jesus those thousands of years earlier? He welcomed. Though I'm sure he was confused by the situation and trying to wrap his mind around it, he welcomed him. But these sons of Abraham in their confusion, are rejecting him. In verse 57, you see their rejection. Their their frustration is mounting. They're on edge. They say to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? You can almost just hear the mockery in that, right? We know from Luke's account that Jesus was in his early 30s at this point. Okay, this, this is just a, 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 little, a little possible explanation. Jesus, Jesus had a rough life, okay? Maybe he looks a little bit older, all right? But they give him 50, all right? They don't give him 40. It's just a little, just a little side note here that 50 is pretty generous. And even these guys that are looking pretty foolish in this moment know to give a wide age range to the person that they're talking to. I mean, come on, when someone asks you how old do you think I am, they're not asking you a question. They're giving you a curse, right? So in this situation, you're not yet 50. Pretty generous, okay? Back to what's going on. You're not yet 50. What are you, crazy? You're in your early 30s. What's going on here? Mocking him. Let me hear this. We've got to get back into the text. What's happening? What's about to happen? The climax is about to happen. All this 
all these claims, the tension has been building to this moment. You can see it. It's almost like throughout this argument, Jesus is just putting a straw on that camel's back. Just put another straw on that camel's back. And another straw, and another straw, and another straw. And at this point in this argument, you would see those camels buckling, right? They're about to go down. And what is Jesus going to do? You're expecting he's just going to put another little straw on the back. But Jesus doesn't do that. He grabs a truth boulder and he puts it on the back of those camels and you see the camels crushed. These religious camels are crushed by the truth that we're about to read. In 58 says this, the climax of this argument. Truly, truly, amen, amen. In other words, I'm about to drop the truth on you, folks. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Silence. You can you could see them trying to compute. What what is he saying? They're trying to catch up to the, the, the logic in that claim. Before Abraham was, I am. The name I am itself suggests it's a claim to being an eternal, uncreated being, which friends only God is. The name is also the sacred name of God that he claimed for himself out of the burning bush to Moses. The name that even people were afraid to use. If there's any doubt that this is Jesus claiming to be God, what happens next is confirmation that they knew exactly what he meant by that statement. You see in verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What are they doing? They pick up stones. They think they're going to obey Leviticus 24. It's a law about blasphemy. You said something so egregious about my God that you deserve to be crushed with stones. So They pick up stones size of softballs in order to execute Jesus because they clearly understood the weight of his claim yet didn't believe so they sought to kill him you need to understand there's a lot of irony in this passage they think that they're being obedient to the holy scriptures okay while chasing down the one who authored it with the stones that he created do you see it They think they're worshiping God and seeking to kill him at the same time. There's foolishness there. You see, they're wrestling with all the claims of Jesus, and really they're wrestling with a familiar C.S. Lewis argument. Jesus was either a liar in this moment, a heretic, a Samaritan, if you will, He is a lunatic, he's crazy, or he's got a demon. Or he was Lord of heaven and earth and one with the Father. If he's making that claim, there's no middle territory. He cannot be just a good guy. He cannot just be a nice teacher that said nice things that we can quote when we want to feel good. No, he is Lord if that's his claim. And if he's not, he's a loon or he's a liar. This leads us to wrestle with it, right? 
This leads us to wrestle with the same thing that they are wrestling with. See, they determine he's either a liar, he's a lunatic. They ain't going to say that about God anymore, so they're going to take his life. They understood. Yet they didn't believe. Now, they didn't get their blood in this passage. He escapes, okay? But eventually they would. They'd get their wish. They'd hang him on a cross. They'd bury him in a tomb. But that's not how it ended, right? It certainly wasn't the ending that they expected. He rose from the dead. Amen? And his resurrection remains the ultimate trump card, the ultimate proof that he, in fact, is God himself. He has conquered sin. He has conquered the grave. And ultimately, he has displayed his full, the fullness of his power as God risen from the grave. The question then for us is the same question they had to wrestle with. Who do you make Jesus out to be? See, the scripture isn't neutral now, just like it wasn't neutral back then. It makes everybody here today determine, what, well, do I think he's a loon, a liar, or is he Lord? Is Jesus who he says he was? Is Jesus the I am, part of the triune God? Or should Jesus have been stoned as a heretic that day? This passage challenges us. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Now, I understand that, that what that thought entails. This is a hard thing to wrap your mind around, just as it was for them back then. A triune God, three separate, but one? How, simultaneously, being God, how does this logically make sense? I can't get my mind around it. But here's the question at the crux of people's objection back then and objection today that Jesus is God. Here's the question for us today. Ready? Does my inability to understand the Trinity mean it's reasonable to dismiss it? Let me say that again. Does my inability to understand it mean it's reasonable to dismiss the Trinity? For the Jews that day, it was. But allow me to make a little bit of a case today, okay? For you to be content in your confusion. See, the Trinity isn't the only thing that we espouse that is hard to wrap our mind around. And so if you believe the things that, that, that I'm saying, I want you to shake your head, okay? You with me? Okay, shake your head. All right, good. Do you believe that God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were involved in creation? As Genesis 1, 2, and 26, and John 1 suggests? Do you believe that? You just nod your head. Do you believe that God is able to speak and in six days all creation comes to be? Do you believe that God is sovereignly, listen, in control of all things past, present, and future? You believe those things. Really? Do you believe that God is perfect? Do you believe that God is everywhere, all-knowing, all-powerful? Do you believe that? All right? Do you believe that God is not bound by creation and can do the miraculous? Do you believe that he can raise the dead? Do you believe in, in eternity? Okay, all of those things then, 
I got to wonder, do you believe that you can really wrap your mind around such a reality? Around that God? I mean, completely. We can all nod, but those, those, those concepts are bigger than we can get our brains around. I would suggest this. If you could sit there and claim to completely wrap your mind around God, then I'd warn you, you might be believing in the wrong one. You might be sitting under poor theology, maybe even led astray. I'd, su- I'd submit that any study of God, any theology that makes God out to be small or completely comprehensible in his totality is failing to communicate rightly the God of the Bible, who is, listen, he's revealed, he's rational, and yet is beyond our feeble comprehension abilities. Some of his statements are are but mysteries to us. In fact, his revelation of himself in the Bible, if if we're really understanding it and we're wrestling with it and we're going deep in it, it ought to leave us Content to be confused. Because he's greater, he's greater, he's greater than we can get our minds around and even words can describe. Be wary, my friend, if you'll only worship that which you can get your mind around. You might be worshiping a God defined by man's wisdom. By your own intellect or maybe the intellect of another. To know our triune God and interact with him rightly, to to study him rightly is to be left in absolute awe. The result of good theological study is greater comprehension, yes, and a greater sense of of his incomprehensibility, of a greater left in awe. If you've ever been in a class and you're like, yeah, I got it all figured out, all, yep, got him, in a box, you've missed it. Now, you might be sitting here today, and you're the skeptic in the room, and you're like, John, you're making a lot of faith claims. Yep, absolutely. Made a lot of faith claims. This has to be received by faith, but I would also say so is anyone else's assertions about reality, because no one else knows everything. We have, to, we have to receive things based entirely on faith, because we cannot know everything that there is. We have to place our faith in something. Contrary to popular belief. Friend, I'll say this. We may not be able to explain the Trinity sufficiently for you today. But we have not abandoned reason. We haven't. In fact, it's perfectly reasonable to expect God. A God that created all this. Just think about it. Who created those galaxies. A God that has created all this. It's perfectly reasonable to expect that he's bigger than you can wrap your mind around. In any case, if you're looking for reasonable expectation, a reasonable evidence, excuse me, Jesus puts forward a compelling argument for your belief in him today as God. See, even outside of the biblical account, he's, verifi- he's verifiably lived a good life, filled with witnesses, acts of power, of God's incomp- incomprehensible power at work in him and through him. He's fulfilled well over a hundred well over a hundred prophecies made about him hundreds and even thousands of years before he came as a man. He was tortured. He was killed. He was buried. And on three days later, he rises from the grave. And he's got witnesses that were reading 
from right now. This is John. He saw him risen, and not only him, but 500 other eyewitnesses that went on to go through tremendous persecution to uphold that claim, and a lot of them dying because they saw the risen Lord, and they wouldn't say they didn't. Jesus has rocked all of history. He's, ultimately, he's been experienced, and he's been rocked. He's been rocking the lives of millions for generations. He's rocked the lives of many here today, and he's ultimately, he's rocked the life of, he's a made follower that you have as a witness before you today. He's real. I know him. He's God. So how will you respond today? We saw how they responded. How will you respond to Jesus' claim? His claim to be the I am. Will you dismiss him, liar, lunatic, or will you make him Lord? Do you believe that he has come? That he went on to die to offer his life as, as a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God to make you right with him? Do you believe that he rose displaying his full divinity, conquering sin and death, and now has the ability, therefore, to offer you eternal life where you sit today? What then will you do? Do you want to know him? Turn. Turn from following your way and follow his way. Confess him as Lord. Surrender your life to his lordship and enter into a right relationship with him. Listen for eternity. Maybe you already believe. Friend, do you know him? Or do you just know about him? The Jews knew a lot about. Do you know him? Does your spirit, even as the word of God's writ, read, or, or as you're singing, does your spirit go, Abba, Father, do you now delight in Christ in a life-transforming way? Can your family, your friends, your coworkers smell him on you? Can they, can they see his, his acts, his love, his words at work in your life? You continue to pursue him in love, even with your profound inability to exhaust his intricacies. Do you know his voice in the quiet place? Do you understand his heart because you've hung out with him? I'd say this, the more you hang out with Jesus, the more his spirit allows him to live through you. Amen? What then will you do with Jesus? Now's the opportunity. You're going to have a chance to draw near to the incomprehensible yet knowable one. To embrace being confounded by the Trinity's beauty, love, and power, and today respond to his gracious grace on display in this passage that he is God and you can trust and have faith in that. Let's bow our heads today and let's just consider some of these things. Everyone just in the quietness of their heart wrestling with the truth that Jesus has proclaimed. Do you believe? Will you make him Lord? You can accept him right there, today, right now.
Maybe you believe, but your loving relationship has grown cold. If that's you, we you beg for another glimpse. We petition him to awake you again in your seat to give you a new heart and a new steadfast spirit within you. We close in prayer, Father. Today, let no one be okay staying where they are unless they're near you. Lord, I pray that people would see your grace for them in continuing that conversation, your desire for them to know you as God. May they believe and may they follow. Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be a bunch of just pure theologians that know about you but don't really know you. Draw us nearer, please, Father. Thank you for your sacrifice and grace that makes that actually possible. May Jesus be the I am to every heart here today, Lord, I pray. Amen.